Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. Thank you for joining today's education. Thank y'all for joining us today for episode 15 of HPNA's Podcast Corner, where we welcome Patrick Coyne, leader in palliative care, to share his leadership journey with us. So welcome to our episode 15 today. Could you Share with us a little bit about your journey in palliative care uh, throughout your career. Well, I'm actually, it's, uh, you may need a few hours because I'm that old, Um, but my my journey has been, um, I started doing palliative care without knowing it, I guess, back in the the 80s when I was taking care of cancer patients on med search units and got interested in pain management because I didn't see much pain management being done. And so I ended up going to grad school and focused my whole thesis on pain management and cancer patients. And that kind of evolved into learning more and taking a lot more courses and spending time with um, people like Margot McCaffrey and all of um, learning more as much as I could about uh, pain management. And um, down the road in the early 90s, I was offered uh, a role after I spent several years in the Air Force of all things running in an emergency room uh, and, and running their hospice units. So I had a little variation there. And then um, Virginia Commonwealth University um, asked me if I would start a pain program there. And so I did that for a few years, got really um a lot of new experiences, um, learned a lot about invasive analgesic techniques and um, got to work with a lot of people who did chronic benign pain, but nobody was doing cancer pain. And while I was there, the cancer center approached me about starting a cancer pain uh, program. And um, so I did that back in 93 or four. And it became really clear to me as I was taking care of the cancer patients, it was most of the time it was pretty easy to manage the cancer pain, but then you had dyspnea and then you had anxiety and then you had constipation and depression and you kind of had to start getting good at treating more than pain. And um, I think I was doing palliative care before we called it palliative care, but hooked up with some really um, inspired clinicians at VCU and um, mostly an oncologist, Tom Smith, but some pharmacists and all. And we started essentially a, a palliative care program and it evolved and grew into being, uh, besides an outpatient clinic, an inpatient consult service. We started an inpatient unit back in 2000. And um, I think that just, um, I, I was the clinical director of that and it grew very uh, quickly um, in terms of, we had fellowships, we had research, uh, we had medicine and nursing students doing training there, and um, and we were doing, I think, really incredible care and um, developed some algorithms so we could treat symptoms really fast, and I, I think I did amazing things, and while I was there, um, boy, after about 20-some years at BCU, they uh, uh, basically was in a roundabout way given an offer to start restart a program here. Um, at the Medical University of South Carolina. And so I guess I needed a new challenge, although I'm not sure why. (laughs) Um, And it came here with what was like one and a half providers. Um, 
who were doing consults who were really um, hardworking people, but um, you know there was no interdisciplinary team. There was no coverage of pediatrics. Um, I think they there was clearly a need for uh, improvement and um, and and kind of moving things forward a little bit. And so they uh, trusted me and hired me and. Um, I've been here almost six years now. Um, I'm the director of palliative care here. Uh, we have over 30 um, people in our team right now. Um, I think we have the busiest pediatric program in the country. Um, if not, we're in the top two or three. Our adult program went from seeing um, about 10 patients a day. We're seeing somewhere between 40 and 50 patients a day on the inpatient side. And we have full-time clinics running on the outpatient side, as well as a telehealth program, which um, sees patients throughout the state of South Carolina. So um, it, the program has grown dramatically in the last six years, and we expect it to grow a lot more. My team is an amazing group of healthcare professionals. We have um, fellows, physicians, nurse practitioners, um, volunteer coordinators, chaplains, social workers, uh, research coordinators. It, so the team is an amazing group. The health system has been very uh, supportive uh, in this program as they've watched it grow um, and have listened to everything. I mean, I have a few regrets of like an inpatient palliative care unit, which the hospital hears from me on a regular basis. We need to grow our outpatient. We need to do telehealth with peds, uh, but we need we need more bandwidth to do all of these. Uh -huh. I think with everyone in the world, COVID's kind of changed the plans you had, um, and so this last year has been pretty much. I think everyone I know has been in survival mode and just trying to get through the year and give the best care we can um, with whole new set of rules. I've had our pediatric team seeing adults um, just because we needed more bandwidth because mm -hmm. the volume at certain times of the year were so bad. Um, our social worker and chaplain came up with a, a support group for people who are caring for COVID patients because it was, um, I think there was a lot of moral distress going on where families couldn't come in and see their loved ones there were honestly a lot of deaths. And so how do we support our nurses and physicians and other team members who are, are dealing with this? And often they're caring for, in some of our smaller hospitals where we're offering support, it may be caring for their neighbors. So we've really yeah. uh, done a lot trying to um, support each other. And, uh, you know, I'm the designated leader of this team, but I, I don't think I'm I'm pretty uh, much think whoever has the most information leads, and I just enable them to do it. Um, you know, Patrick, that, hearing you say that, there was a couple of things that I had done some pre-interviews with your with a couple of your long-term colleagues, and um, Connie Dolan actually mentioned um, about your contributions development and the team wellness team collaboration concept that you developed at BCU and also brought into MUSC. And she recognized that as probably an extremely important component of palliative leadership. 
And could you tell us a bit about what that model is? Um, well, we, there are a few models. Um, one has been, you know, that I, I believe that the team has to take care of themselves. So we do annual team retreats. Um, we have team meetings that really don't talk about patients um, once a month, really talk about how we're doing and how we can do better and what's going on, um, frankly, with the team and each other. Chance to uh, look at our our challenges, but also to highlight what's been good, our wins. And so um, I've always felt it's important that the team has to take care of themselves and they have to have autonomy. And so, you know, some of my, my rules, I don't have many rules, is that my goal is that everyone leaves at the same time every day. And I know that doesn't always happen because of the, you know, five o'clock ER consult or the patient who crashes, but I, I don't want one person here till eight o'clock every night and another person leaving at four. So how do we support each other to be successful? And um, so that to me is really important. Over the years, Connie and I worked on a grant that um, did an externship for advanced practice nurses. And um, we brought them in for a week and really taught them, you know, really aggressive pain and symptom management, but also leadership skills communication skills. Um, how do you figure out a budget? How do you market? Um, how do you know team members you need? Um, because clearly it's not palliative care unless it's interdisciplinary. And so, you know, you got to make sure you get the right people on your team and you know you need them. I mean, I our team doesn't work without our chaplains and social workers. Mm -hmm. And so they play a, a huge role in what we do. And so um, I think Connie's been, you know, we've partnered on a lot of projects over the years. So she, you know, she's an amazing um, person herself in terms of leadership. And, you know, she's, she's good at kind of um, giving me input on things that may work. But the other part of it, I think she's seen um, how I lead in the programs I've been involved with, mm -hmm. and, um, how I do things. And I'm, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty transparent, which can be a good or bad thing. Um, but if I see something I don't like, everyone's going to know it. And I don't often use a filter, which may not always be politically correct. Um, but you're going to know what I think. And so that transparency is there, huh, Patrick? <laughs> it's there, yeah, front and center. I think everyone who works with me knows what I'm thinking. Um, so back in the early, well, I guess probably more towards the mid to late 90s, and I will date us all with this statement. Um, you started working with a team of APRNs to um, do a leadership focus on APRN-led programs mm -hmm. for palliative care. Yeah, um, that was probably oh, 10 years ago, maybe. So that program is, was then spun off into the APRN externship, which was a Cambia funded grant that you were referencing. Right. And for those, those of you that are listening, we'll have information um, available in the link to this podcast about the, uh, the internship program for, for reference. And another quote that I heard, Patrick, that came from Betty Farrell was uh, just the 
overwhelming uh, contributions that you have made to LNIC, both nationally and internationally yeah. through the years and put in your leadership um, in that role. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, sure. I, I've been I've been blessed um, in, in a lot of different ways. I, I'm blessed. I, I got to meet Betty and she's given me some amazing opportunities um, with LNIC. I've I was lucky early in my career, I got to meet Judy Pace, who taught me a ton about pain, Connie for sure, and then Tom Smith, who's an oncologist, who I got to work with. So I've had, I've had a lot of great mentors and supporters who have gotten me through, um, I think, professionally have made me better at what I do. But, you know, years ago, back in... Um, Thinking back in 98 or 99, um, Betty approached me about doing a course on education for nurses in end-of-life care. And um, I said, yeah, I'd be happy to be involved. And um, the next thing I know, we're sitting in a room in, I think it was Nashville, Tennessee. It was Nashville, Tennessee. And yep. um, yeah, so we were locked in a room for a week trying to figure out what would this look like, Elnick? And it was Betty, Judy, me, um, Joan Pankey. Um, oh, God. Uh, I'm going blank on the other person. Um, but, you know, we, we walked out of that room at the end of a week with assignments of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And um, I remember thinking, this is amazing. And, you know, we started all work and I ended up being in charge of uh, the symptom chapter and communications. Um, and so that was where my energy was. And I remember the, the first pilot I did of the symptom slides, I think there were 230. And I remember sending them in and them coming back saying, well, you gotta do this in, in an hour. So good at 60, and I'm like going, oh my god! So it was, uh, it was actually, it was, it, it actually became a torturous love affair, um, trying to get it done. And it was, uh, I had a an Ashby Watson at that time, who I brought in to help me try to figure out how do I cut this down. And it was, it was amazing to watch how Elnick um, grew and became what it is. I don't think when we were sitting around in that room in Nashville that we ever thought it would be what it is today. And it, it's gotten better and better through the years. I think and it's, it, it's yeah. a lot more evidence-based. Not that it wasn't then because we all built it on evidence, but there's more evidence. So I think it's, it's really evolved in an amazing way. And it was nice, you know, the, that we were able to put some emphasis on over the years on uh, safety net programs, critical care, uh, geriatrics, pediatrics. Um, there was an oncology um, curriculum for a little while that was pretty, pretty much, uh, which was a good thing. So I, it's it's really um, amazing, and then to have the opportunities to take it um, to um, poorer nations around the country that were, you know, I, I think I've been in Central Asia four or five times teaching it and. Japan and Jakarta and um, really Africa, probably four or five weeks, uh, several times with a, 
uh, I think the first time was three weeks in, um, in Tanzania and then several weeks in Kenya. Um, so it's, it's been uh, really amazing to watch how it's evolved. And even a, a, a course we do, we've done several times for um, the poorer countries in Eastern Europe has been the feedback from the participants and how they've taken Elnick and grown it and to have it in their language has been, um, it's really been a blessing. And the emails I get from the, the nurses who have done those courses and where they've taken it have been um, beyond gratifying. I, uh, you know, at the end of a bad day, picking up on those letters is clearly gives you a smile. It kind of lets you know you're, you know, something good is going on somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, I mean, going from the, from the one room to, you know, uh, over a million nurses being educated with LDEC this year. That number just amazes me. And, um, you know, I think we've all taught it in some unique areas. I mean, uh, I'm, I taught it at a, 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 skilled nursing facility, a bunch of nuns asked us to teach it. I remember teaching the course there and they paid us with bread. It was amazing. Um, you know, we spent two days teaching all of the nurses there. And I think we've all had some really good stories of things mm -hmm. we've done. And I, you know, we did it for free and they give us these loaves of bread. It just seemed really uh, unique. Some of the things that, how this has evolved. It, it, it's, I, I don't think any of us saw this coming. I, well, I, I I can't imagine how you could have been to be part of being the person in the room, you know, when you're doing the initial draft. And this, you know, of course, it's been funded through Robert Wood Johnson, the initial funding. And so 20 years of LNEC, over a million people. Uh, Patrick, you were there at the beginning. You take it from national to international back again. And yet another example of, of leadership. From so I, I, like I said, I've, I've been lucky and blessed and got to work with some amazing people on this journey. And, and, and LNEC's just been, a, frankly, it's a lot of fun during COVID. I've hated not being able to sit and talk to, you know, mm -hmm. that we work with. I, I learned so much from them. So how have your experiences, Patrick, uh, as a nurse, a practicing clinical nurse specialist, uh, how did that experience in palliative care inform your leadership experience or your leadership journey? Um, you know, I think I had a lot of different experiences with leadership during my, as I, as I grew up. Um, I, you know, I started off as an orderly and an EMT and worked under a, a charge nurse who gave me a lot of autonomy and uh, basically if I didn't know the answer, she pushed me in the right, right direction to learn. And I think that was helpful because it was like, I'm not going to give you the answer, but I'm going to show you how to get it. And so I think that helped a lot. And I do that. I tend to use that a little bit. Um, the military differently had a whole different way of leadership. Um, it is clear I was not cut out to be military, but the people I work with worked really well with my style. And, um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I think, I think of my years in the air force and I, I think I used rank twice. Um, 
and you just kind of learn you really the goal is to do the right thing and as long as uh-huh. it's doing the right thing and I do think uh, my experience was probably more like MASH than real military but I was surrounded by great people and um, and they taught me a lot and um, yet there are times you have to change your leadership style and I, I did learn that a lot because there are times you got to be you know, um, laissez-faire, and there are other times you got to be autocratic, and it depends on what the situation is. And so, you, you, if you don't change your leadership style for the situation, you're um, you're in trouble. You can't have the same style all the time. And so, I, I learned that. I've watched other leaders learn from them. And but the biggest thing is you've got to listen to your your team. Um, you know, if you you got to make sure you do right by them. You got to have their backs and you got to protect them. And I think a lot of teams don't um, get the protection they need um, and should get. And, you know, you got to have a moral compass too. You've got to always just make sure, is this the right thing for the team? Is it the right thing for the patients? Is it the right thing for this institute? And you kind of weigh all those things. And um, sometimes they face people have different um, missions. So you got to stay with your mission. So I'm a big believer, um, Clarion uh, Wysak, who I got to work with at VCU, um, once really taught me something valuable. And, um, and if you are running a program or running a team, you need a, a value statement and you need a mission statement. And if there's any confusion, you go back to that. And just make sure that you're meeting the, what you put down in writing. And so, you know, when I started here, the first thing I, I did, and I think some people kind of rolled their eyes, like, why are we doing a, a mission statement? But everyone's got to be on the same mission. And everyone's got to have the same goals for the team. And so that's why I think it's important. And every year I ask the team, is this still our mission? Are these still uh-huh. the things we want to accomplish? And so I think that's really important because if it isn't, because times change um, and, and values change on good or bad. And so I think that's been really good, and especially if you're bringing in new people. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, listening to you talk about one of the, when we were looking at the, I was reviewing some of the evaluations from the, the nursing externship courses that have been going on for the past couple of years, the immersion courses. Mm -hmm. And one of the um, nurses that attended was nurse practitioner out of North Carolina and had put, when they came to the medical university for that site visit or that course, um, that you were, they so admired your role in advocating for your team. And that was what they hoped to take back to their their facility um, as to what they felt was the most important thing they learned was advocating for your team through your actions. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm sitting here laughing. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I take it for granted. Um, I think the biggest thing is that you have to you have to take a step back and you have to look at the team's bandwidth and the team's health. And I've been doing that more in um, 
era era of COVID probably because um, one because we see a lot of deaths and our roles have changed a lot. I mean, we historically do a, a fair amount of family meetings, but you know, for for the surge, there were no families, so doing these all over the phone, I think, was exhausting and doing many a day was exhausting and trying to figure out how you could FaceTime to family so they could see their loved one, um, I think was a little, was very emotionally distressing. And mm-hmm. so how, you know, check in with the team. How are you guys doing? Um, you know, take a break, you know, kind of thing. I, I really, even when we were busy, you had to take your days off and we changed the schedules around a little bit so that people were putting in so many hours. I, you know, I, I changed everyone's schedule to four days on three days off. Um, so that we found a way that we knew that everybody was working more than 40 hours a week, a lot more than 40 hours a week, but I felt like they needed an extra day to decompress. And, um, you know, and I think that was really important. And it was also important that we made one team into two because if one team got sick, we knew we'd need a backup. Mm-hmm. Um, and since the teams work so closely with each other, that became kind of a plan too. So we were doing a lot of planning so that um, we could continue to offer care, although it may not be as um, robust as we would like. Well, I was really nice to read that, you know, to know that, you know, that's an opportunity for somebody to take something back as a looking at a work in progress or a working example and knowing how it should be to take that advocacy important message back. And hopefully they're advocating for their teams. Like, I, I hope they are. It's, um, it's been interesting. You know, it, I'm basically walked into a physician's position. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the job was posted as a physician. So when they offered it to me, I was kind of confused. And as were many of the, frankly, physicians here um, as to why I was interviewing. And, um, and it's been great because I have a team that um, takes everyone at face value and not by, well, you know, I'm not listening to you because you're not a doctor or I'm not listening to your inputs because you're not a social worker or chaplain. And I think we just all know we need each other and we support each other. And that's probably the best part of being in palliative care is you know the importance of team. And if you don't, you probably shouldn't be doing this. Patrick, there are no truer words. Uh, we need to we need to probably put that quote up there on the site too. There is no truer example of, of teams than palliative care. And so what have you seen as challenges between being um, in your director's position as a, you know, director and then leader from a national and technically international standpoint and still practicing as a clinician, Patrick? How do you manage all those hats? Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I don't see myself as a leader, so that's nice of you to say, but um First of all, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have taken this job unless I could see patients because that's what fills my heart. Um, and I think that's what keeps me going. 
Um, I like the idea that I can help others grow and help a program grow. And so I do like the administrative part of it, but I wouldn't want to do more than, you know, um, I'm 50% admin, 50% client. Um, I, I wouldn't want to do any more than 50% administrative ever. And, and so a lot, but I'm also working more than 40 hours a week. So however you want to plan that out. Plan that right. Exactly. But I think each piece of it gives me a little bit of joy. I know the clinical gives me more joy. And I think if I'm not clinically savvy, how can I lead? So how do you stay clinically savvy if you're not mm -hmm. patients? Um, so that's that's a balance that question, you know, for, for nurses that are looking to advance their their leadership contributions in palliative care, you know, from an institutional or organizational standpoint, but also clinically, is having to be forced into doing majority of the time administrative work. Um, and then in turn, having to do weekends or moonlight as a clinician to keep those skill sets up. And we're hearing a lot of feedback from the field about that's one of the biggest challenges for them. It's, I, I think it's a really big challenge. And here we're talking on a holiday and I'm at work. So that tells you how well that's working. Um, the, I, I think you have to sit down and kind of write down what's important to you professionally and, and personally. And I, you know, when I was looking at leaving BCU, the things I, thought of coming here it would be great to see another program grow and MUSC you know it's it's a it's the leader in in South Carolina in terms of health systems so how could I make palliative care important there but I also know how do I show people the bandwidth of what we need if I'm not actually seeing patients and and I think that was important for people to understand is yeah, I can say there's not enough A, B, and C, but if I'm not going to the bedside, you know, mm -hmm. how do I really know that? And so I, I thought that was important starting off and it hasn't changed and, and, and I'm not going to let it take me away, but I do ask different questions now too. Um, I really am working to try to promote more research. I want us to be more evidence-based. I am really concerned we're so short of palliative care, um, both providers, but nurses at the bedside who know palliative care, how do we get the education to them? And, and why isn't it mandated in schools of nursing? Uh -huh. You know, we know everyone's gonna die, but not everyone's gonna, you know, deliver a baby or have psych problems and yet we put so much energy into those parts of the field and we, we leave pain and symptom and end of life like it doesn't exist. And that, that does bother me some. And that's coinciding with work again, that, that you've been involved with, with Betty Farrell out of City of Hope and the AACN about cares and G cares and getting those types of educational LNEC-based programs available to the colleges of nursing so yeah, that they mean, can yeah. choose to incorporate them for free. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I think those those are important things. And, you know, they, I, I've really decided in 
I did this in Virginia and I'm doing it now here is how do you legislatively you get people to think about it. So, you know, we've really been pushing them legislatively to look at how they support um, palliative care on a state level. And I, I really think that's important if you're an advanced practice nurse, really a bedside nurse, as well as do you understand the, the support that's being given for education so that we know that nurses who are, you know, over 40 probably got no education in palliative care. Right. And many nurses who are just graduating, if they're lucky, are getting one or two hours. And so how do we really push that? And um, I think we just really need to push the envelope so that states go back and and fund LNIC type courses and also tell their schools of nursing, look, you've got to make this part of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Well, that'll be, you know, I think that we'll see more and more. And I really appreciate your advocacy from a legislative standpoint, Patrick. That's you know, that's another opportunity for looking at leadership and taking it to that level. Um, because ultimately, if it's mandated or if it sits on the on the, the nursing boards, generally it's going to get the attention it needs in the educational curriculum. Yeah, and if you attach money to it, people wake up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Patrick, what would you tell others who were looking to advance their leadership skills in palliative nursing? Um, I, I think, boy, that's a hard question. Um, first of all, I think they should figure out what they want to do and where they want to be. And, you know, I, I think a three-year plan is important. Mm-hmm. I used to say five-year plan, but things change so quickly. Um, where do they see themselves in the next three years and where do they want to be? And if they are where they want to be, great. How do they make that better? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you also have to do a lot of introspection on how you practice. And so are, are you evidence-based? Um, ongoing laugh with um, the fellows who are here. You know, I make a point of reading three to five articles a week to stay current. And yes, that's hard some weeks, but it's also, I want to make sure that I'm staying up to date with what would be best for patients and families. And so how do you stay current? I think you have to kind of do that. Do you want a leadership mod be part of leadership in a health system or palliative care program? And for some people, it's not the right thing. Just to be honest, I've, uh-huh. seen, I've seen a lot of programs fail. Um, and I think we've all seen through the years that they historically you got the best nurse on the unit and you make her a nurse manager and it doesn't go well. And I think you have to figure out if that's what you want to do. And if you have the um, energy resources and support to make it work and, and do you have the and it nowadays endurance. To, to do that. And so that's part of, I think, when you look at the three-year plan, do you want to do that? So one of the past fellows I w- was talking to last week, he was calling for advice. And I, I said, you know, you, t- you tell me about what gives you joy every day. And at the end of the day, what came out was it was seeing patients. And I was like going, so tell me why you want this leadership job you're talking about, because it's going to be 50% away from patients 
and doing things that you tell me you despise. Um, and I think it, uh-huh. it sounded good, but the more we talked about it, it was taking him away from what he loved the most. But I guess he thought at this time in his career, uh, a title sounded good, but maybe the title sounds good, but the job wasn't what he was going to come home and be happy about every day. And I think you have to just sit and figure out what gives you joy. And And that's actually one of my questions, Patrick, is uh, what inspires you and brings you joy? Uh, (laughs) Sailing. (laughs) Well, you're in the spot for it. (laughs) Sailing and fishing. Um, You know, but professionally, I think I get the most joy from watching team members do amazing things on a regular basis. I bet. Yeah. I bet. That that probably gives me the most joy. Years ago, I probably would have answered making the pain go away or doing the symptoms, but that was just me. But now, you know, I've got 20 other people out there and if they could all do one amazing thing a day and make a, a patient's day better and the family's day better, that's better than just me. Oh, Patrick, that's beautiful. There's That's going to have to be another quote from, from this podcast. Then the words of Patrick. Um, what about... Sleep. <laughs> no, no, no. So what about if you were thinking back... Um, where you started, you know, mid, late night, 80s, 90s, mid 90s for palliative. What do you see happening and what's your vision for hospice and palliative nursing leadership today? Um, it won't be the same as it is now. And, and, and I say that for a lot of reasons. I, I think the healthcare system's changing quickly. I think COVID's pushing that change. I, I truly envision telehealth becoming a gigantic role um, in caring for patients. Um, home visits, I think clinics, it makes sense if you, they don't have to worry about driving 40 minutes to see someone, mm-hmm. fighting for parking. Um, so I think that's gonna change things dramatically. I think the inpatient hospital side will be what it is. Um, so that part, I, I don't see a lot of changes and the need, that need won't change. But I see the future of palliative care programs. If you're not doing telehealth visits, if you're, uh, I think you're missing a big part of it because if we can keep patients comfortable at home with their families and keep them out of the emergency room, um, coming in with crises and getting them to enjoy more time with their family. We're going to be much more successful. And as healthcare moves to um, an accountable care organization, which I think it will, especially with the change in um, healthcare, which may happen under the new administration. Uh I, I do see that accountable care organizations will become larger and larger because we can give better care and it's probably going to be more cost effective. And 
I think insurance companies have to kind of buy into this is the way to go. Not all have. And, and this is from birth through geriatrics. So, I mean, PEDS has to be able to offer this as well, but we're going to need a lot more clinicians. And as the population of the U.S. gets older, um, the need for palliative care is getting greater and greater. So mm -hmm. I really do see the need for more externships for advanced practice nurses. I see the need for bedside nurses to get a lot more palliative care savvy, um, both and especially in the ambulatory side and the home side. So if you were going to think back, this is the hindsight question. Um, in hindsight, what would you tell your early career self that you would do differently from based on what you know? I, I, I'd say, um, boy, it's been an incredible journey. Um, I don't know if I do a lot of things differently I, I i i'm there are things i would well there are things i would have done differently I, I probably would have been a lot more politically savvy um i may have bit my tongue a few more times i would have um i what i've learned over the years is before i start a new intervention is i take a step back and um, make sure I'm not doing it in haste um, because I think most interventions that are done in haste are mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, so I think a few times I would have definitely taken a step back or two. I, I think I've been lucky. I've been able to get myself surrounded by smart, caring people who I can trust and um, and I've been lucky. Honestly, I've been really lucky. I don't know how you build luck, but I've been lucky to have great people with me through my journey professionally. And maybe and have to sort them, seek them out. And seeing the ones that you're building for the future, you know, the clinicians that you're mentoring through that are going to be the next generation of leaders for us. And, you, you know, know get Carrie Cormack, you got, you know, you've got all these great people you know, sitting at the medical university, they're going to be the ones that are going to be leading. I, yeah, I've, I've got great people here. And, you know, and I've still got, you know, I, it's not uncommon for me to pick up the phone and bounce a quaint pain question off Judy Pace or hit Connie with an idea for how do we improve education or, you know, give Betty a call and say, what would you do in this situation? So, I mean, I, I reach out to these these friends and peers and mentors all the time and um they always and, and so i would say if you're young and look for people who are like-minded who you can bounce ideas off of and they're going to give you an honest answer i mean i remember i had one patient who was just having a miserable time and i was dealing with a, a warden of a prison system and i think i was going at him and i remember uh, tom Smith, who's a great friend and uh, he's an oncologist and we started the program at BCU together. I remember him pulling me off the phone because I thought I was going to go through it. Um, just because he wasn't listening to what the patient needed. And, uh, you know, he, he taught me, um, you know, mm -hmm. like my tongue and 
I may get a little bit farther with sugar. <laughs> well, you're, since you moved to Charleston, you probably really have. Well, this, this, in fact, Patrick, bringing in HPNA a little bit here, two things that you, you had mentioned before about, you know, finding somebody that's got like minds with you, reach out to your colleagues, develop your, you know, your own, you know, support or resource pool. Um, we're going to be offering a, a mentoring, mentee, re, kind of re looking at, at having those resources. So there'll be some information coming over from HPNA about that resource availability tool. Um, and the other is that 2021 is our year of the nurse leader. And so this is January. And when it came time to, to look at planning for our podcast and, and, you know, what we wanted, Patrick, you were the first person Ginger said, you know, let's, let's get Patrick. Um, and a lot of this, Patrick, is because you've got, you know, a vast amount of experience from an institutional setting, but also the contributions, both in clinical education, clinical practice, as well as in publications, um, has, has lends us an opportunity to be able to take your experiences and hopefully inspire others to embark on that leadership journey. And well, thank you. I, I actually, it was fun when we did, we did that leadership uh, workshop for the days. I, I miss doing that. Um, that, that was a, that was a great full day immersion course workshop. I mean, let's just get in here and, and spend the day together with a team of people. And, well, and I, it's just, I'd love to do that again. Boy, the feedback from that was amazing. It was amazing. And that's a great, yeah, Patrick, it's, it's, uh, you know, when we were, we did that course in Niagara, we did that course, I think in Orlando, You know, I we did it in Pittsburgh. I still hear from uh, three or four of the nurses that were in that Niagara group. And, um, and I think there were only 15. Uh-huh. And they, you know, they've done some amazing stuff. So they, they still drop me an email every now and then. So there's, you know, I, I think they just needed the, uh, the jumpstart. And I think the jumpstart, that's a good term. That's right. And this is, let's start with, you know, determining your leadership style. And that's what y'all started out with. Let's figure yeah. out what kind of leader are you? And then how do you map it out? Yeah. So with year of leadership, Patrick, you're, you, again, we cannot thank you enough for your contributions to palliative nursing, oh, well, palliative care, HPNA, and to all of us who have been inspired by you and continue to be inspired by you through the years. So with that, do you have any closing comments for our folks out there today, Patrick? Um, I kind of feel honored that you guys invited me to even be part of this. Um, I think the, the biggest thing I would, my advice is that, um, Find a, find a job you love and then make it the best you can. And with that, that will conclude our podcast for today. And thank you all for joining us. Mm -hmm.